You are listening to the Catholic Thinkers Podcast, a free treasury of instruction in the Catholic intellectual tradition. If you enjoy this lecture, please visit us at catholicthinkers.org forward slash donate. This course is from our International Catholic University Classics Collection, originally recorded between 1995 and 2005. Hi, I'm Dr. Marcellino D'Ambrosio, and what we're going to do in this class, number five in the Norms of Catholic Faith, is we're going to talk a little bit more about the various senses of Scripture and the idea of hermeneutics. And then we'll march on and talk about tradition. Let's talk about uh, the fact in the last class we mentioned that there's a literal sense of Scripture, and that is looking at Scripture as a human word, as God speaking through human words and emphasizing the humanity of the word. Therefore, we're looking at what the, the author consciously intended. The word hermeneutics means rules of interpretation, particularly rules of interpretation of sacred documents. So hermeneutics really varies a bit based on what sense of scripture you're reading, what's, what, what kind of interpretation you're doing. When you're looking for the literal sense, there are certain rules of interpretation that are common to lots of different documents, human documents. And the, the main rule is that you understand human words in their native context. You use every tool available to understand the original context of the author, his times, his language, his culture, the images from that culture, and those kinds of things, the language of the time, you know, the actual language that was used, if, if it's written in Hebrew, it's in Old Testament words, you know, you have to understand Hebrew extremely well. You even have to study the language of neighboring peoples oftentimes so that you really understand what's going on. A lot of Hebrew scholars have to read, learn Aramaic and learn some other ancient languages, okay? So the hermeneutics of the literal sense have to do with really being an excellent interpreter of ancient documents. But there's also some, in the literal sense, there's also some rules be, that have to guide any biblical interpreter who's actually seeking the literal sense of Scripture. You, if you're seeking the literal sense of Scripture, you're still seeking what God is saying through the conscious awareness of the author. So you, you are looking always for the meaning of the author, his religious teaching, his religious and moral teaching. You're not simply looking to reconstruct the times. Those are the basic hermeneutical rules that need to be used when you're studying for the literal sense. Now let's look at the spiritual sense. And we'll, as we're talking about the, the various levels of the spiritual sense, we'll be talking about uh, some very important rules here too. When we're, when we're studying the spiritual sense, we're studying, we're looking at Scripture for God's perspective on the whole of Scripture. We're looking at not just uh, you know, one particular author's statement and what he meant, but we're looking at an author's statement and a person and a thing and an event in light of the entire sweep of biblical history, the entire canon. So the principle of totality is used, looking at one text in terms of the whole, that's a very important hermeneutical principle or rule when we're studying the scriptures according to the spiritual sense. We're looking at the, every single statement in light of every other statement, every single author uh, in light of every other author. So it's the unity of the scriptures that is our hermeneutical tool. That's what we presuppose 
we understand that God has a plan that exceeds the mind of the natural, the, the, the author who's inspired, that's very critical. Okay, let's look at the spiritual sense a little bit more because this is fascinating. And, and actually, when we understand the, all these three senses, we see how it is that the church's tradition wants us to approach the scriptures and how the scriptures are designed to give us life. Okay, the ancient writers saw that there were different levels of the spiritual sense. And the first one has to do with doctrine or teaching. And it's called the allegorical sense. If you want to look at, follow along what I'm going to say in the Catechism, it's Catechism paragraphs 117 to 118. But think about the Old Testament and think about a person like David, who is the, the, the ideal king, the king after God's heart. He does fall with the Bathsheba incident, of course, and he's not perfect. But he is the king who defends the people uh, up until his fall there. He is the king who is wholly devoted to God, um, who is devoted to all the things of God, to God's worship, to his temple. He dances before the ark with abandon. But David is a symbol. He's more than just a historical figure. He becomes a symbol of ideal kingship. Okay, But he, he's a symbol of a person in the future, the son of David, the, the one who is the perfect king, Jesus. So there's, an, there's a meaning of of David that points forward to Christ. And you can look in the scriptures and see correspondences, objective correspondences, where you see the manna of the Old Testament and you see it prefiguring the Eucharist in the New Testament. And you can see the Red Sea and the people going through the Red Sea in the Old Testament prefigures baptism in the New Testament. Now, this is a magnificent and, and a very exciting thing when you see these kinds of correspondences. But they're rather objective. They, they give you insight into the mystery of salvation, but they don't make a personal claim necessarily clearly on your life. And so th some people call this typology, but that's not a very traditional term. It doesn't go back to the fathers. It was actually coined in, in the 17th or 18th century. And, and the problem of referring to typology is that there's a lot more to the spiritual sense than just these correspondences between Old Testament and New Testament. All right. So this allegorical sense or these, ob this objective meaning of mainly the Old Testament as it relates to the New Testament, the correspondences between the two testaments, the way in which Christ and his church is prefigured by types in the Old Testament. All right, but those, th this magnificent mystery in the Old Testament that prefigures what's going on in the New, it also has a bearing on our personal life. Scripture isn't given to us just for the sake of giving us a lesson in the history of salvation. It's given to us to change our lives. And tropology, the tropological sense or the moral sense, is the third sense of Scripture. It's the second uh, phase of the spiritual sense. It's where the spiritual sense begins to have a bearing and a claim on our life, on our active life. It's the personal, active meaning of the Scriptures, the implications of the Scriptures for, for, for my life right now, for the way I'm living my life. As we read the Scriptures and the Holy Spirit applies the text of the Scripture and calls us to repentance and calls us to change and convicts us of sin and challenges us to new initiatives as we read the Scriptures, this is the way this reading Scripture is supposed to go. It's supposed to go from the objective into the personal. It's, and that's the tropological sense. The process of moving there is discovering the moral or the tropological sense of Scripture. 
but you know, it's supposed to lead us, the, the active life now is very, very important, but it's meant to lead us somewhere. Our active life now, our moral life, is meant to lead us to intimate union with God now and to eternal life in the future. And when we, we start moving in that direction, into either mystical contemplation of God, union with God now, or into the future, into life with Him forever, and we think about heaven and think about Jesus coming back, then we're reading Scripture according to the anagogical sense. The word anagogy has to do with jumping or leaping. Scripture becomes a springboard, and we leap from Scripture into the arms of God in prayer, or we leap from Scripture in, into the contemplation of the glories of heaven. That's what the anagogical sense is all about. It's a personal sense. It's subjective, but it's more contemplative. It's less active. It's, it's more mystical. It's experiencing eternal and heavenly realities here and now through the mediation of the biblical text, and it's longing for their full consummation in heaven. So the Holy Spirit engenders in us as we read Scripture. It brings us to the, the Holy Spirit wants to bring us to the place where we, we long for union with God, where we experience a taste of God. Taste and see that the Lord is good, it says in Psalm 32. And that's what happens in contemplation, and that's where reading Scripture is supposed to bring us, to a place of contemplation, not just a place of thinking about the meaning of the Scriptures in the past, uh, not just in a place even of, of, of our active life, of thinking about how we can change our lifestyle, but bringing us to mystical union or intimate union with God now, leading us towards heaven. If you would pair these three levels of the, of the sense, uh, the, the spiritual sense of Scripture, you could pair actually each of them with one of the great theological virtues. The allegorical sense is paired with faith because it teaches us dogma, that Jesus is the new Adam, that he's the new David, that he's the new Moses, as we look at all the types in the Old Testament of Christ. So it teaches us about dogma, about the reality of God. So it's faith. The moral sense, love. Okay, love of our neighbor, love of God in the present, working itself out in an active way in our lives. And finally, anagogical sense is about hope. Hope is longing for God in heaven, desiring to be with him forever, desiring union with God. And that's what the anagogical sense engenders in us. It strengthens hope. It's an exercise of hope. Okay, let's just take a look at the four senses of Scripture. One of the things we have to realize is that the church is saying that the whole Bible has this fourfold sense. And it's, it's not saying that every text has a fourfold meaning. That's a very mechanical way to look at it, and it's not what the tradition says at all. Okay? But there are some texts where you could look at the same text and read it at four different levels. And I'm just going to do that for a second. I'm going to look at Psalm 84 that I mentioned already. How lovely is thy dwelling place, Lord God of hosts. My soul is longing and yearning, yearning for the courts of the Lord. Now, what are the courts of the Lord there in that text? Well, according to the literal sense, it's very clear. It's the sanctuary of God's people in Jerusalem. It's the temple. But now the temple doesn't exist. So how can Christians read that and it not just be a history lesson? How can it be meaningful for Christians now? You have to read it according to the literal sense. Excuse me, according to the spiritual sense. If it's going to be meaningful for your prayer right now. So how lovely is your dwelling place, Lord God of hosts, my soul is longing and yearning. Well, according to the allegorical sense, what's the fulfillment in history now of the ancient temple? What's God's dwelling place among us now? Well, it's God's people, the church. It could be secondarily the church building, 
but it's God's people, the church. So how lovely is thy dwelling place, Lord God of hosts, according to the allegorical sense, could be being among God's people in liturgical worship, being in the church building. But also, is not, does not God dwell very profoundly and intimately within our soul? It says that very clearly in the scriptures. We are, you know, temples of the Holy Spirit. So how lovely is thy dwelling place uh, it can also refer to that place within us where we intimately meet God in prayer. I long to be in prayer, Lord. You know, I long to be in a place of quiet with you where I can focus on you and enjoy your presence. That would be reading it according to, uh, you know, the, the uh, a more interior, personal, tropological sense. But obviously, God's dwelling place ultimately is in heaven. How lovely is your dwelling place, Lord God of hosts. My soul is longing and yearning for heaven to be with you forever in glory. That would be reading the scriptures according to the anagogical sense. Is one true and not the other? No, all four of those readings would be accurate readings of the scriptures. Now, the, the fascinating thing is that the fathers of the church saw that there's a dynamic to reading the scriptures, that it needs to start fundamentally with knowledge of the literal sense. If you don't understand in that text that the psalmist is talking about the Jerusalem temple, and that's the place where God dwells and where God's people go, particularly the men have to go at least three times a year for special pilgrimage feasts, and that it's a celebration. To come into God's presence in prayer and sacrifice also means celebration. If you don't know all those kinds of things, you can't really fully enter into the spiritual meaning of that text. So you start with the literal sense, and then you move to understanding the church as the fulfillment of the temple. And then you move from there to see that you're a temple of the Holy Spirit. And you move from there to seeing the glory of God forever. It is a dynamism that starts with the past and leads through the present into the future. So reading scripture becomes a process of personal transformation. That's really what the fathers of the church saw was the proper approach to the Bible. And all the study of the Bible, all the reading of the Bible, whether it be academic, or whether it be spiritual, uh, it all is supposed to lead ultimately there. That scripture was given to us fundamentally for our personal transformation. Okay, so first of all, this shows us a number of things. Number one, the meaning of Scripture is inexhaustible. Scripture can never fully be exhausted. You can, I, I've heard, and I'm sure you've heard of people who've read the Bible and said, oh, yeah, I've read it already. You know, I've read the Bible once and put it down as if it were a book that you could just, you know, uh, blaze through and put down and you got it all. No. Why do we read Scripture over and over again and it never get old if we're living a life of faith? because it ever has new meaning. Deeper levels of meaning are read in the same words over and over again. The other thing that is important to note is the fourfold interpretation of Scripture, these four senses, is a dynamic process and it's a progressive process. If anyone simply stops at the literal sense, they're truncating the process that God is intending for uh, the Christian as he approaches the sacred word of God. Okay, if someone leaps over the initial senses and tries to get into mysticism right away without understanding history, without understanding doctrine, it's not going to work very well. It's a dynamic, progressive process. It can't be short-circuited, but also can't be truncated. Okay, number three, the ultimate goal of revelation, we talked about at the very beginning of this class, it's not just conveying information. It's establishing an intimate, personal relationship that transforms us. The purpose of Revelation is for our knowledge of God that transforms us. It's salvation, okay? And that's reading Scripture, the vehicle, the privileged, written, inspired vehicle of God's revelation, 
one of the, the two great modes of transmission. The reason we read it is to be transformed, ultimately, to grow closer to Him. And, and that leads to another point in hermeneutics. Holiness of life, life in the Holy Spirit, is something that aids us in interpreting Scripture. Holiness, in other words, is a hermeneutical principle. It's, it's a guide to interpretation. The saints are some of the greatest interpreters of Scripture, and many of them didn't have a lot of schooling. Why? They were transformed by Scripture, and being transformed, they were able to understand it more deeply. Beautiful circle. The, the more you come to Scripture in faith, the more you're changed, and the more you're changed, the more you're able to understand, because you're more like the meaning of the text. You're more like the author of the text, so you can see it more deeply, more clearly. So it's a wonderful progressive process of deeper inspiration and deeper conversion and deeper understanding that is going on in the life of the Christian. Okay? Another point is the church believes that Christ is really present in the proclaimed Word of God. When the Word is proclaimed in the liturgical assembly, Christ is really present there. In other words, Scripture is a vehicle for God's living now word to touch us and change us. It's quasi-sacramental. That's why we incense the book. That's why we bow before the book of the Gospels as Catholics in the liturgy, why we kiss the book of the Gospels. That is, we're not kissing the, the book, we're not incensing the book. We're incensing the word of God, we're kissing the word of God that comes to us through that book. Okay, so that's a magnificent reality. And we're talking, the church officially teaches about the proclaimed word, Christ being present there. But even when we read the word privately, I think a good case can be made that Christ is really present there. All right? The final thing I'm going to point out is that in the senses of Scripture, we see that there's a, there, there is legitimate theological pluralism. Now, what does that mean? Pluralism means there's different approaches to the same book that are legitimate. We saw that there are four different expressions of Jesus' life that are legitimate. And here we see there are some people who focus more fully or and, and read the scriptures and read out a meaning that is maybe different than another person reads out. But these meanings here are not in conflict with each other, they're just different levels. The four gospels are not in conflict with each other, they're different perspectives that fill each other out and complement each other. So there's a because God's truth is inexhaustible, no one person can ever get the corner on the gospel market or the scripture market. No person, no scholar can ever tell the whole story. So there's legitimate pluralism that comes from the inexhaustibility of the mystery of Christ. Now there's also not legitimate pluralism. Pluralism in the early church, there were more than four Gospels. Some were ruled to be absolutely unacceptable. Why? Because they were at odds with the four canonical Gospels in the picture they presented of Jesus, of his life, and of the, the meaning of his life and his teaching. So there are things that don't work, okay, that are impossible. There are lots of interpretations of Scripture that have to be thrown out. In, and we're going to talk later on how you discern those things. But there is a legitimate pluralism here, and that's because of the inexhaustibility of, of the mystery, okay? It needs so, different expressions in order to, for, for us to have any hope of getting some full sense of its range and its power. So that's a little bit about the senses of Scripture.
And what I want to conclude with in talking about the scriptures is this. It's very clear in the church's teaching that the, the word of God as comes to us in scripture is both human and divine. And, as a, and you cannot neglect one in favor of the other. If you do, you become heterodox. You leave orthodoxy. You leave balance behind. Orthodoxy is about holding all dimensions of the truth in tension. Um, it's kind of hard sometimes to hold different sides of the truth together in tension. We'd much rather relax the tension and just focus in a lopsided way on one thing or on another and exaggerate. It's kind of, uh, I think, uh, fallen human nature. But here we have two truths that are hard to hold together. Like Christ, the scriptures are both human and divine. Now there are some people who want to forget about the divine part and just focus on the human part and make the Bible like any other book and make the Bible not have a claim on our lives. And those people were called modernists at the turn of the, of the 20th century. Protestants had modernists, Catholics had modernists. And modernism is real and there are people who are you know, who have that kind of tendency. On the other hand, the opponents of the modernists had an equally erroneous point of view. They defended the divinity of Christ and the divinity of God's Word, but they totally focused on the divinity of the Bible and forgot its humanity. And that's what fundamentalism is really all about. The problem with that is it sets up a, a total um, conflict between faith and reason, between science and religion. And it discredits religion. It discredits the truth of the gospel. It makes it appear ridiculous. And, and so it's not good. It is not pious to so focus on, on the divinity of God's word that you forget its humanity. It's not what God would want. So what we have as, a, as our task as Christians and Catholics is upholding both sides of the truth, the humanity and the divinity of God's word. So God's word really is divine words but they come to us within human words, divine words in human words. Now we've talked about scripture as a mode of uh, um, transmission of, of, of sacred divine revelation. But there is another mode whereby divine revelation is transmitted to us. And that mode is called tradition. And what I'd like to do in the last few minutes of this particular class is give a little introduction to tradition. In the next class, we'll unpack the notion uh, quite a bit more. But in the Bible, let's look at the, the word tradition in the Bible. The word tradition in Latin, the word was tradita. And, and that tradita were things that were handed over or traded. That's the Latin word. Greek word was something different, paradosis. But those things, think about the Latin, the etymology of tradition from the Latin. Trade, hand over, that's the, the, the idea of tradition. Tradition are things that are handed over or handed down from person to person, from generation to generation. The things handed down are tradita in Latin. Okay? The process of handing things down is traditio, from which our word tradition comes. So in Greek, it's rather the same thing. There are things handed on. It's almost exactly the same. The, the word for tradition in Greek is the word for handing over or handing on. And that handing over and handing on is a process, is a verb for it. In English, we don't have a verb. We don't have a, word, a, a verb 
traditioning, you know, to tradition something. We have handover and we have the noun tradition. But in Greek and Latin, there's a noun of what's handed over, and it's almost exactly the same as the verb, the process of handing it over. Now, in the New Testament, the, word, the, the Greek word paradosis and the verb form to tradition, to hand on, is used in positive ways and negative ways. Here's some positive uses in the New Testament of the idea of tradition. 1 Corinthians 11.23 says this. This is Paul speaking. I received from the Lord what I also tradition to you. In, in English, we have the word delivered or handed over, depending on the translation. But the Greek word there is traditioned, the verb form of tradition. I received from the Lord what I also handed over to you. Namely, on the night before he died, Jesus took bread. So the, the narrative of Jesus' Last Supper is tradition. It's handed over. Paul did not participate in the Last Supper. It was handed on to him. The story, the reality was handed on to him, and he was handing it on to, to God's people verbally. Okay? 1 Corinthians 15, 3-4. Paul uses the same thing, the same verb to talk about handing on the story of the resurrection. For, for I delivered to you what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance to the Scriptures, and on the third day He rose again from the dead. The basic gospel message is traditioned, handed on. Here's one last positive use of the term, 2 Thessalonians 2, verse 15. Paul says this, Hold to the traditions which you were taught by us, either by word of mouth or by letter. And I want you to see that here the idea of tradition encompasses both oral teaching and the writings that Paul gave to, the, to his people, the writings that we now have in Scripture. There's a way in which you can't separate Scripture and tradition, and that this text is a testimony to it. But also, you, you cannot disparage the oral transmission of Revelation and, and just champion the written, because Paul doesn't do that. He says, hold to the traditions which you were taught by us, either by word of mouth or by letter. All Paul's teachings here are called traditions, and they come through either handing on or by writing. For our purposes, we're going to stick, using tradition, we're, we're going to use tradition in a certain way. We're going to focus in on the oral transmission as tradition. That's what, what is customary now. But here's some negative uses in the New Testament. Mark 7, 7b to 8. They, the Pharisees, Jesus says, teach as dogmas mere human precepts. You disregard what is God's commandment and cling to what is human tradition. What is the context here? People not following the Ten Commandments, which come from God, because they're trying to follow rabbinic traditions, traditions that are not inspired scripture, but are traditions of the rabbis, of human origin. Okay, that's an important point. Here's another one. Colossians 2, 8. The writer, St. Paul, says, See to it that no one captivates you with an empty, seductive philosophy according to human tradition according to the elemental powers of the world and not according to Christ. In both these instances, the problem isn't tradition, it's its origin. It's the origin in human beings who, whose tradition is opposed to God. 
So the Bible, the New Testament, is not negative to tradition. It's negative towards human traditions that are put in place of God's commandments. We hope you enjoyed listening to Catholic Thinkers. Please visit us at catholicthinkers.org forward slash donate to help us keep this content free.